If you want to account for why cannabis is illegal and alcohol is legal, you need a story for that because you can't do it pharmacologically. Right? On every dimension I can think of, alcohol is a much nastier drug. Hi, I'm Raihan Salam, and this is The Vice Podcast. Today I'm joined by Mark Kleiman, a professor of public policy at UCLA and one of America's leading experts on the criminal justice system and specifically on drug policy and drug policy reform. Mark, thanks very much for joining me. Raihan, it's a great pleasure. So given that we're here uh, on a Vice podcast, it occurs to me that you are something of an expert on Vice. Can you tell us a bit about uh, your experience? Um, so I, I actually use Vice as a technical term. Um, so there's a set of activities that form bad habits in a significant fraction, though rarely a majority, of the people who engage in them. Like anything can be a bad habit for somebody, right? Imelda Marcos managed to have a bad habit around shoes. Indeed. But that's rare enough so that I can think about policy towards shoes without really thinking about the people with bad shoe habits. Um, if I think about alcohol policy or gambling policy or cannabis policy, um, the people with the bad habits are central, not peripheral. Not, again, because they're a majority. They're not. But because the minority with bad habits accounts for most of the consumption and the vast bulk of the problems. So with alcohol, the, the uh, Pareto 80-20 rule is, is carried out. The top 20% of drinkers, ignoring the third of the American population that doesn't drink at all, the people who drink, you divide them into deciles. The top two deciles account for 80% of the alcohol consumed. The, to be in the top decile, you have to drink four or more drinks a day, every day year round. And that group accounts for half of the alcohol. The fact that that's even a tenth of people who are drinkers strikes me as quite extraordinary, because that's a, that's a tremendous amount of drinking. That's a lot of drinking. Of course, you could have four drinks a day and never be drunk. Right? You could have a beer at lunch and a glass of wine with dinner and a cocktail after. I mean, you know. I suppose you, you're right. You could get four to, right? But people who average four drinks a day year-round rarely do it that way. And if you look at that top decile and you ask what the median consumption is, it's 10 drinks a day. And I suppose when you're thinking about someone who is addicted to buying shoes, this doesn't necessarily have spillover effects. It could, in some loose sense, have a spillover effect on your loved ones because you are spending money on shoes right. rather than on, uh, you know, caring or nurturing for people in some other way, providing them with other needed resources. But it seems that it doesn't uh, lend itself to other larger social problems. Whereas the suggestion, I guess, is that with gambling and other forms of vice, that the spillovers are more problematic? Well, my guess is gambling is more like shoes. It's simply a way of, it's a, it's a sink for money. <laughs> um, tobacco is another good example, right? So tobacco doesn't have any bad behavioral impacts we know about. Um, it's just a health risk and a, and a, a money sink. Um, so the, the intoxicants, alcohol, cannabis, cocaine, the opioids, the amphetamine-type stimulants, have that different set of problems of ge generating behavioral toxicity. But that's separate from their role as vices. I mean, the fact that they're also vices means that I mean, you might think that somebody gets drunk, does something stupid, suffers for it, and doesn't do that again, and that would damp out the problem. But if people form a bad habit, then it doesn't damp out the problem. What initially drew you to the study of vices? Pure accident. 
Um, I had never looked at that problem, never looked at crime control for that matter. In graduate school, went out and did three jobs that had essentially nothing to do with any of this. And then my teacher, Phil Hyman, who taught me public management and politics at the Kennedy School, got to be the head of the criminal division of the Justice Department. He's a criminal law professor in, in real life. Um, and set up a policy and management shop and hired Steve Hitchner, who was a couple years ahead of me in school, to, to run it. And Steve said, you want to come play? And it wasn't a topic I was interested in, but there were people I, were, I was interested in, right? First advice to freshmen, don't choose courses, choose professors. Hmm. So instead of going to work for the Environmental Protection Agency worrying about how to measure the benefits of air quality improvement, I went to work for the Justice Department to think about public corruption. And when I got there, there were a couple of drug issues on the table and nobody would need to deal with them. So I did, and then I was a drug specialist. Fascinating. So, Which is an interesting consequence is that most people who are deeply involved in drug policy, crime control issues, have a passionate interest one way or another. So their brother-in-law got murdered or their nephew is doing 20 years in prison on a minor drug charge. So to some extent, they're advocates. They're inclined towards advocacy and crusading on the issue because of their personal experience. Right. That's, that's how they got into it. That's the stake right. for them. And I don't have that. I mean, I've got strong opinions about this stuff, but, 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 but there, I have no opinion about this stuff that I'm not willing to sacrifice. This is not me. You know, you've had a number of people, you've had a great deal of interest in your work recently, partly because you see a larger move towards the deregulation of various narcotics, but specifically of marijuana. And you've been working on projects uh, in Washington State relating to their new effort to uh, change the way we regulate the recreational consumption of marijuana. Uh, And one thing I've noticed is that people will often ask you whether you yourself uh, partake of drugs. And my sense is that you don't take kindly to that question. Uh, And I was wondering if you could tell us why. I perfectly understand why it's asked. Mm -hmm. It's a a simple method, particularly for somebody of roughly my generation, of placing somebody culturally. Mm. Either you drink and you're on the football team and you voted for Nixon and you're for the war in Vietnam. (laughs) Or you smoke dope and you have long hair and a beard and you're in the SDS and you vote Democratic, if you vote at all. Um, and so it's a perfectly reasonable placement question and about half of every, every cohort experiments with cannabis. So it you know, sort of nicely divides the population. And on the other hand, you know, if I'm working on AIDS policy, nobody would ask me how many sexual partners I had. I, that just wouldn't seem relevant. Um, the other problem, of course, is that if you answer the question, you've immediately disqualified yourself. Right. right? Either, yes, I'm a lawbreaker, come drag me away, or no, I don't know anything about the stuff I'm writing about, so ignore my opinion. And it means that everything you say can be dismissed as merely the product of that cultural background. It's, so sometimes yeah. I can't figure out any answer to that question that's beneficial. I just... Don't answer. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess, you know, one way to think about it is that if I were someone who advocates reforming drug laws, yet I insist that I've never used drugs or or what have you, I suppose along some dimension that might give me some credibility, but why should it give you more credibility? I mean, you know, you would think that uh, the strength of your arguments is what ought to be most relevant. Well, and and unless you're a Mormon or a Christian scientist, it's very unlikely that you've never used drugs. Hmm. Caffeine is a drug. Alcohol is a drug. Um... You know, drug use is really quite common. Um, never having used a drug that happens to be illegal right now 
is a different category. But remember, in 1925, cannabis was legal and alcohol was illegal. So the, 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 I, I don't think of drug in that sense, controlled substance, as anything like a natural category. So this raises an interesting set of questions. I mean, there are many people who favor uh, deregulating uh, drugs, et cetera, who will argue that what we're really looking at is a kind of cultural struggle in which the intoxicants that are used by one cultural group are stigmatized, whereas the intoxicants that are used by some other cultural group, let's say a dominant uh, cultural group, a larger cultural group, are going to be privileged and treated very differently. Uh, do you think that's basically what this amounts to, uh, the way that we treat different intoxicants differently? Or do you think there's more to it? Do you think there's more complexity around the different effects that different intoxicants might have? Um, I think the simple story is not a bad story. And if you want to account for why cannabis is illegal and alcohol is legal, you need a story for that because you can't do it pharmacologically. Right? On every dimension I can think of, alcohol is a much nastier drug. It's toxic to every tissue and organ of the body. Um, it forms a really nasty, bad habit, and it has very bad behavioral side effects. Again, in the people who drink badly. Um, and so it's really hard to see why alcohol should be legal and cannabis illegal. If you were starting a fresh planet, I don't think that's the way you'd make the choice. On the other hand, that does not convince me that I now know the answer to what we should with you. So the, the simple argument is, well, alcohol is legal, cannabis is less hazardous on, on most dimensions, and therefore cannabis should be legal. But notice there's a, a non sequitur there that assumes that the alcohol policy is the correct policy toward alcohol, which I vigorously deny. Alcohol kills 100,000 people a year in the U.S., that's mostly victims of their own drinking, but about 20,000 20, of it is victims of other people's drinking through crime and accident. That's more than all the illicit drugs combined. And so when somebody says, oh, well, we know how to deal with a, with a drug, we just treat it like alcohol, I say, are we having fun yet? Well, one thing I wonder about is that I think one argument people will make about alcohol, and this occurs to me that this can apply to many different substances as well, many different narcotic substances. You could say that we don't live on a fresh planet uh, and that there are different practices that are culturally embedded and culturally regulated. So, for example, when you think about um, ayahuasca versus DMT, uh, traditional shamans uh, you know, who uh, make use of ayahuasca will have an elaborate series of rituals surrounding its consumption, whereas if you use it in a very pure form, uh, if you use it in this kind of ahistorical, culturally disembedded context, it could mean something very, very different. So with right. any number of substances... You know, you have that kind of evolution. And I suppose with alcohol, you could say that given that it's so pervasive in our culture, we have cultural practices for its regulation, and that with a variety of other drugs as well, maybe because they're newer substances, at least in our culture, we haven't yet developed uh, the cultural antibodies to control their use. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense to me. And if you look at the havoc that distilled spirits created in England after the revolution of 1688 when William's court brought gin with it from Holland, right? There's a century and a half of real social catastrophe. And it basically takes Methodism to turn that around, right? So there's a, a long cultural struggle. Yeah, and of, of course, if you go to England, it's not a, not a completed cultural struggle. We don't have that for other drugs. An interesting possibility 
is that legalizing cannabis? So you can make that an argument mm-hmm. for keeping cannabis illegal because we don't have good cultural practice. Or you could it. make an argument against, I guess, too. You could make the argument that cannabis is a much more hazardous drug consumed illegally and with no tradition of responsible use than it would be consumed legally and that you know, that the U.S. could have could develop what I'm told is the upper middle class Australian pattern of passing a joint around before a dinner party and everybody taking one puff in order to improve the taste of the food and the quality of the conversation. And that when an American goes shows up and goes, all the Australians think he's just a Bulgarian. You're not trying to get stoned, you know, any more than you'd chug the bottle when a bottle of wine is passed around at dinner. So it's possible that we could over time develop patterns of responsible cannabis use. I think we will to some extent. Um, I think it would be way too optimistic to be sure that's going to happen. And this is a discussion that really has not not even started in the discussion about cannabis legalization and, and regulation. How can we, through policy, encourage the development of good habits? When you talk about um, when you talk about alcohol, I've noticed that in your work uh, you have advocated. You haven't necessarily said, like, gosh, let's you know prohibit alcohol, partly because that's just impracticable. It's very politically unlikely. But you have talked about new strategies for regulating alcohol. And given that you see alcohol as a very dangerous substance, uh, one thing that some people might find surprising is that you've suggested that we get rid of the minimum drinking age. Uh, can you tell me about that? Is the idea that that might make it easier to regulate the, uh, the practices surrounding alcohol? It might... Uh, my main reason for wanting to get, get rid of the minimum drinking age is that it's routinely violated. And there's a Talmudic principle that a law that's not obeyed is a bad law. And when It I might s- undermine faith in the justice yeah, system. Yeah, well, when I survey my UCLA students, um, about half of them have a fake ID. You know, in an age of terror, that's not such a good practice to, to cultivate. Hmm. I wouldn't want to get rid of them. I mean, there's evidence that, the, that lowering the drinking age did contribute to a big increase in drunk driving accidents among kids. But if you had a a lower or or no minimum drinking age at all, and what some states now have, which is a zero BAC rule for drivers under 21. So if you're behind the wheel and you're under 21, you may not register any amount of alcohol, which roughly means you have to wait to drive as many hours since your last drink as you had drinks. Not, not a hard rule to follow. It turns out that that, plus a different rule, which is that you can never have more than one teenager in a car. A teenage driver can never have a teenage passenger. Those two rules together get your teenage driving problem down to a, a manageable level. And that plus an increase in the alcohol tax, I think would do a pretty reasonable job at controlling underage drinking without setting up this absurd situation where most, 80% of high school seniors report having had a drink. And perhaps it's also likely that if uh, people are drinking legally, they're more likely to just be socialized into responsible drinking rather than binge drinking, perhaps? Possible. (laughs) Uh, But you wouldn't bet on it. I wouldn't bet a lot on it. Um, uh, I mean, there's an argument that raising the drinking age help contribute to the binge drinking culture on campus. I mean, that's what the Amethyst Project people say. Maybe. 
Um, again, I'd be much more comfortable if we had either minimum unit pricing or a substantially increased alcohol tax. I mean, the easiest thing that you can do any of these things is make it sufficiently expensive so that people think about it. Uh, there's an old, old ad for a premium scotch. It said, if the difference in price between our product and ordinary scotch matters to you, you're drinking too much. I know this is That's a good principle. I know this isn't quite your area, but I, I am curious as to your thoughts on this. Over the course of the time you've been working on drug policy, there seems to have been a really dramatic shift in how the American public thinks about drug policy. Uh, for example, some surveys find that there's a narrow majority of Americans who now believe that uh, marijuana should be legally available, including for its recreational use. Right. And I wonder, what do you think has driven that change? Um, very hard question. Uh, since I didn't predict it, nobody else predicted it. I'm a little skeptical about all explanations for it. What you observe, and, and uh, uh, Bill Galston and E.J. Dion did a, did a paper for Brookings looking at some Pew Center survey data, very careful analysis. And they take the obvious comparison point, which is gay marriage. And there are similarities, a uh, big generational uh, component to it. Also strong differences. Um, attitudes for cannabis are far less partisan, far less regional, but also the positive attitudes about cannabis legalization, and it's very unlike gay marriage. And people who are for gay marriage are mostly for gay marriage. They think that it is a positive good that people should be able to marry the people they love. Most of the people who want to legalize cannabis do not think that pot smoking is a good. They think that prohibition is a bad idea or a failure. And I think part of what's been happening is the prohibition regime has been collapsing. This is like what happened to alcohol in the late 20s. Prohibition was actually a fairly successful policy for its first five or six years. And then the industry basically overwhelmed it. We're now up to $35 billion a year in illicit revenue from cannabis. And I think, I think there's a, I mean, obviously most people don't know that, but I think there's a sense that this now is not not sustainable. So there's been kind of a cascade in which the credibility of the effort to stamp out its use is just completely gone because its use is already so pervasive. Right. And, and in the states where, through under the guise of medical marijuana, we had essentially complete legalization, Colorado, California, western Washington, you might think that the voters would be offended that they were bamboozled. You know, they thought they were providing compassionate relief to people with AIDS and cancer. And this is what people warned against. I mean, you know, people who opposed medical marijuana deregulation were. They were completely correct in those states. There are other states that actually have medical marijuana. Right, Colorado, 3% of the adult population has a marijuana card. Delaware, which is also a medical marijuana state, three one-thousandths of 1%. Fascinating, so it's just far more stringently regulated in Delaware right. than in Colorado. Right, and it's basically an East Coast, West Coast thing. East of the Mississippi, it's pretty buttoned down. West of the Mississippi, it's pretty wide open. But what's interesting is the voters in those states, instead of reacting by saying, oh, we were bamboozled, not going to be fooled again, they're saying, oh, I guess we legalized marijuana. I guess the sky didn't fall. I guess that was okay. That's interesting. But of course, we didn't actually legalize marijuana. And that's one of the issues I, I, I was hoping to explore with you. Um, when you look at Washington State and Colorado, it seems that these are really bold new experiments because when you get away from the medical use of marijuana, you get into a thicket of all kinds of interesting, complicated regulatory issues. In principle, yes. In practice, 
any adult in California has permission to use marijuana, right? If you walk out on Venice Beach, three different guys in stethoscopes and scrub suits will come up to you and offer you cards for 25 bucks. So it's, it's pretty well legal in California. And what we might get from formal legalization, commercial legalization, I don't like to say recreational because I don't know why people are using it. Right. Some of the people buying in the commercial system are going to have medical need for it. Some are going to be doing spiritual exploration. Some are going to be feeding, you know, drug habits. <clears throat> but whatever they're buying, the people buying in the commercial system might actually be subject to more regulation than the people in the wide open part of the medical system. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but yes, this is, in principle, what's going on in California and Washington is new. We're saying adults can get it and, and somebody else can grow it for them. Well, it seems that that partly introduces some complications because the various international narcotics control treaties have carve-outs, if I'm understanding correctly, for the medicinal use, uh, whereas they don't have carve-outs for other uses. Correct. So, I mean, is that going to be a barrier? Is that going to be something that... uh, It would be a barrier to national legalization. I don't think it's a barrier we can't overcome. We could... We could propose a revision of the treaty, which is not likely to happen, because the U.S. is no longer the, the hawk in international drug fora, right? I mean, the Russians and the Japanese and the Swedes and most of the Africans are much more, and, and most of East Asia, much more hawkish than we are. Um, but the other thing that we could do, we could do what Bolivia did. Bolivia has traditional cocoa chewing, and the original treaty allowed that sort of under a grandfather clause for 25 years, and then that permission expired at which point Bolivia is supposed to tell the peasants in the Andes that they can't chew coca to be able to function at high altitude. And the new Bolivian government, which is head, headed by a cocalero, said no. And they withdrew from the treaty and then re-exceeded to the treaty with a reservation for their traditional practice. Mm-hmm. And the rule is that unless a third of the other signatories object, they're allowed to do that. So we could, if we want to deal with the treaty problem, we can deal with the treaty problem. In the meantime, as far as I can tell, the treaties aren't binding on the states. You've recently written a book about marijuana legalization. You've co-authored a book about marijuana legalization. It's utterly fascinating. Uh, One of the issues you raise in the book um, is the fact that we don't really have any experience of full commercial legalization. People will often mention Holland as a place that has legalization, but of course that's not quite how... uh, the regulation of marijuana works in Holland. Can you tell us a bit about that? Right. So the Dutch system is weird. The Dutch have roughly the same drug laws we do. They also have a published policy of not enforcing the law about possession and sale of cannabis up to some level. And what the level is changes. So it used to be you could buy 30 grams, now you can buy 5 grams. Uh, The new law says you have to actually be a Dutch resident to purchase. Um, the changes have to do partly with attitudes or drug policy, partly toward the fact that in the latest ad- election, the anti-immigrant party got a big chunk of the vote and were needed in the coalition, and they're also very anti-drug. Hmm. Uh, not clear they were actually having any problems. And but the Germans sort of have been tourists and what the, the Germans have been pa- pounding them all, on them about, about cannabis tourism. And a bunch of the border towns apparently found pot tourists not very profitable. 
Um, so they're not unhappy to have that go away. But, it, you know, apparently the city officials in Amsterdam said, you know, you can pass any law you like, but we're not going to shut down the coffee shops or require that foreigners not go in. Hmm. And, of course, if they actually enforce that, since the foreigners don't know, there'll be people showing up in Amsterdam looking for pot, and therefore there'll be a market of people to go into the coffee shop, buy their five grams, come out on the street corner, and sell to the American. Well, given that the Dutch uh, are have roughly the same kind of drug laws that we do in the United States, yet you're permitting its sale, that raised the question of the back door. That is, how does the marijuana actually get to the coffee shop? And that's something I'd love to hear from you about. So what the Dutch say is that the front door is legal, almost legal, and the back door is strictly illegal. And the large-scale cannabis producers... So the marijuana just arrives in the coffee shop miraculously. It just somehow materializes, right. The pot fairy brings it. But the Dutch cops... Search hard for the pot fairy. And if you're running a commercial cannabis grow in the Netherlands and you get caught, you wind up in prison. And as a result, the stuff in the coffee shops costs about the same as illicit market pot costs in Germany. Seven, seven euros a gram. Um, roughly the California price. So, yeah, it's... They have decriminalized the retail sale, which means that People can go in and buy and don't have to worry about being arrested for possession and may be able to find a seller that's a reliable seller. But it's not not the same as a legal market. I mean, John Calkins, the, the first author on the marijuana legalization book, and Bo Kilmer and their, their colleagues at RAND did the calculation. Think about it. What's a joint? It's the dried flowers of a plant in a wrapping. What does that sound like to you? Sounds a lot like tea. Sounds like a tea bag. Well, what's a tea bag cost? Penny? Hmm. Two cents? Trivial. Right? The joint costs four bucks. So that's the difference between legal and illegal. Coggins has calculated that if cannabis were legal at a national level in the U.S. and were grown outdoors like corn. As opposed to inexpensive grow houses using hydroponics and what have you using a tremendous amount of electricity. Right. And surreptitiously and everything done by hand rather than industrially. Hmm. So if we applied industrial principles to it the way we have to corn, you could grow cannabis with all of the THC that's now consumed in the U.S., THC being the primary active agent, on about 35,000 acres. That's two dozen medium-sized Iowa corn farms. That would be the cannabis supply for the U.S. So people are talking about how this is going to be a bonanza for farmers. No, legalization would collapse the farm gate price. Um, And unless somebody figures out a clever branding strategy, the whole market's going to be trivially small before tax. Because a joint will cost, you know, maybe a nickel. Right. (laughs) As John points out, you could make a joint for about the same as you could make a packet of sugar. And so if you're running a restaurant... You might want to put the joints out as well as the packets of sugar. To stimulate appetite. But a friend of mine in the restaurant business says, absolutely no. Why is that? It'd kill your turnover. Ah, because people just linger at the restaurant. People just linger at the restaurant and get get them out of there for the next next victim. But you you could do that um, before tax. So then the question is, okay, how much? My view is the current illicit market price, which is... uh, rough numbers, four bucks for a joint, four-tenths of a gram is about four bucks. Um, and if you're not a habitual user, if, you're not, if you don't have a, a tolerance, a joint of contemporary pot 
we'll get you thoroughly stoned for several hours. So you're paying, well, a buck an hour for your recreation. The, the Doritos cost more than the pot. I don't see any reason to let that price drop. Well, this is an, a really interesting and difficult question because, you know, one could argue that, okay, criminalization is problematic for all kinds of reasons. Uh, you know, there are plenty of, when you're talking about the 80-20 rule before, uh, most of the users are not problem users. It seems like an undue restriction on people's freedom, et cetera. Yet, when you imagine the kind of price collapse that you're describing that would flow from commercial legalization, it seems really hard to predict what might happen, how consumption of cannabis might change. Uh, so, I mean, have you been thinking at all about how consumption might change? And also, when you're looking at Washington State and Colorado and other states that are trying to uh, broaden and kind of approach commercial legalization, what are they thinking about the actual production and distribution uh, of cannabis? Well, so here's the problem. Um, the Colorado and Washington laws were passed by initiative, which means they didn't go through any of the vetting that a normal piece of legislation does. I mean, this reminds me of Tom Lear's remark about folk music. The problem with folk music is that it is written by the people who by and large have no musical talent, whatever. Yeah, well, they're not such great legislators either. And you know, uh, the people writing the initiatives wrote them to pass. And so they were simplified in a way that made sense to the voters. Uh, so they, the tax systems are different in the two states, but in each case the tax is a percentage of the, of the price. Well, that means the tax falls as the market price falls. You'd like the opposite. You'd like the tax to rise as the non-tax price falls. If you're concerned to about keep, control and consumption. Yeah. To, to keep the price at you know, whatever your preferred level is. Um, so one version of it could be you could decide, just measure last year's consumption, make that the quota for THC, issue licenses to produce that much THC, and auction them off. And that would you know, then then the producers would bid those those prices up. That would be in lieu of taxation. If I'm a grower in California right now, uh, it seems that my legal status is very shadowy. I mean, how, do, how does that work? So I assume that the, the state and local police are not going to... Depends on where you are. <laughs> Depends on where you are. And not everybody growing in California is growing for the California market. Um, so now you're... you're you're taking some legal risks. Are there licensed growers? Are there people who have some kind of this, status that protects them? The, the state medical marijuana law is just a mess. It's, it, there is no regulatory authority for medical marijuana. And so you've got a, a patchwork of local controls no real licensing, essentially no taxation. So as in, as in uh, the Netherlands, you have a pot ferry that's coming into dispensaries and... Uh... Well, no, because the dispensaries aren't even really legal. The, the law allows collective growing. It there's, doesn't say a syllable about retail stores. Um, but it's all a question of what, what people can get away with. Uruguay has recently uh, announced a new set of cannabis regulations that sounds really interesting and innovative. Mm -hmm. uh, I was struck by this partly because uh, in Uruguay, it seems that cannabis use is actually much less pervasive than it is in the United States. Uh, and yet my understanding is that the Uruguayan authorities want to allow people to grow their own and to grow it in cooperatives, but they want to present, uh, prevent this kind of full-scale commercial legalization. My understanding is that they're going to set up a state monopsony monopoly so that 
you can grow for, for yourself or, or as a collective, but if you're going to grow for sale, you have to sell it to the government and then the retail stores will be run by the government. This is a bit like so some states in the United States in which you have state alcohol stores. Right, but the state alcohol stores buy from private vendors and the private vendors do the marketing, right? So, so Budweiser and, and Johnny Walker take care of the marketing effort. If you'd like there not to be marketing effort, that's a real problem in the U.S. because of the Supreme Court's commercial free speech jurisprudence. But I think that a state could set up a state store system, say, if you want to sell marijuana through our store, tell us you know, what the product characteristics are, are and what the price is. And here's your vendor agreement, and sign right here that you won't do any marketing. They can restrict the behavior of their vendors in a way that they could not restrict the behavior of private market participants. And I would, I would like that. You can't do that while it's illegal under federal law because the state can't tell its employees to commit federal felonies. I mean, they can issue licenses to private parties and the private parties are at risk. What I'm worried about is that we're gonna get locked into a commercial system through state-by-state -state legalization. And by the time we get to a federal legalization, we're gonna be stuck with that model. So could we have a federal law that permits states to uh, create their own state stores for the sale of cannabis? We could. We could have a federal law that allowed states to license not-for-profit enterprises, but not-for-profit enterprises. Again, there's some treaty issues about that. Uh, but yeah, if, if, if we change the Controlled Substance Act, we can do pretty much, Congress can do pretty much what it wants. But here's the problem. Even though there's now, one, by some measures, a narrow majority for cannabis legalization. There's essentially no congressional support. There's one bill that would essentially have the feds defer to the states. But even that has maybe two dozen co-sponsors. So you have to ask why a proposition, very substantial public support, has so little political behind it. Now I have a theory about that mm -hmm. which I don't have science for which is that people use politicians' votes about topics like drugs, crime, and sex to evaluate the politicians' personal morals and that there are people who will vote for cannabis legalization in a referendum who would not want to vote for a politician that could be presented to them as a drug legalizer because that means he's morally tainted. One thing that's a recurring theme in your work is a, is a great concern about how for-profit firms might shape the consumption of cannabis. Uh, it, tell me a bit more about that, because I mean, there are many people I know who think that, well, gosh, why shouldn't we allow uh, you know, an R.J. Reynolds of marijuana to emerge? You, know, you certainly have for-profit firms selling alcohol. You know, surely with uh, you know, reasonable, insane regulations and taxes, that could be a perfectly fine thing. Why not allow people to profit from its sale? Um, back to the 80-20 rule. The, the public interest is in the provision of alcohol, cannabis, gambling services to people, adults, who use them responsibly and harmlessly. And the control of the behavior of people who are going to damage themselves and others. The commercial interest is in finding those people with problems and making as many of them as possible. Right? If you're in the alcohol business, you're in the alcoholism business. Right? They all have these signs that say, drink responsibly. That means, please put us out of business. 
It's not responsible drinkers that built breweries. And so it seems to me, I mean, I don't, I don't have any personal animus against the people in those businesses, but their business model is directly contrary to the public interest. And so I'm a great believer in markets as you know, providing products at high perceived quality to the consumer and low price and encouraging people to consume them. And for shoes, I'm perfectly happy to have that. And for vices, I'm not at all happy to have that. So the concern is almost that for-profit firms will work too well. That is, you know, given that their goal is to maximize profits, and given that the most profitable consumers are those who are the binge consumers of any given product, um, you know, you think that they're just going to do a great job of marketing effectively and increasing overall consumption. I believe in capitalism. And therefore, I want to keep its hands off this particular set of problems. Are there problems that might arise under this kind of cooperative model as well? Uh, sure. Look, it's, it's frequently possible to conceal profit as salary or perquisites um, and basically get the, get the surplus out some other way. Uh, there's, there are lots of scandals Got in it. the not-for-profit so the idea is that world. Just because I'm a nonprofit doesn't mean that I'm not feather bedding, doesn't mean that I'm not uh, you know, kind of offering very, very generous salaries. Kind yeah. Of above. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the University of California is a not-for-profit enterprise. I think the UCLA basketball coach makes $4 million a year. Uh, and the football coach probably makes the same. Mm-hmm. And you know what? That football coach is not very interested in the problem of concussions among his students. Because as Upton Sinclair said, it's very hard to get somebody to see something when his salary depends on not seeing it. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, if there's big money running around, even if it's in a not-for-profit format, there's going to be an incentive to overmarket. But at least you can hope to control that. Um, do you think of marijuana as a unique product among controlled substances? Or do you think that as we inch towards uh, marijuana legalization or deregulation, uh, et cetera, that we might see something similar happen with other controlled substances as well? I think the hallucinogens and MDMA and, and the MDMA analogs um, are a special category, um, not very cannabis-like because they're, they're products consumed by almost all of their consumers very infrequently. And therefore you need, I think, and, and they have risks that are different from the cannabis risks. So I think you'd want a different system for them. But I think of them as at least plausibly legalizable. The other quantitative intoxicants, the opioids, uh, cocaine, and the amphetamine type stimulants, including meth, I don't see it. One thing about opioids that, that strikes me is that, and this is obviously a you know, somewhat controversial subject, it does seem as though you have some people who are regular users of heroin uh, who are able to be high-functioning as well. And, and cocaine and meth. <laughs> Except for nicotine in the form of tobacco cigarettes, there is no drug product in the world that captures a majority of its users to bad habits. Uh, actually, caffeine is a, is a partial exception. Hmm. But, the, but, again, but the caffeine bad habit is just not damaging enough to be a big social problem. But, but, but yes, of course, there's controlled opiate use. I, I think controlled stimulant use is harder, but, but certainly not impossible. Hmm. The opiates, unlike the stimulants, have very little behavioral risk 
right? I mean, a, a heroin addict who's jonesing and needs a fix might do anything to get it, including mug you. But a heroin addict who's shut up is the most peaceful person in the world. He's, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a threat to himself and his family and maybe a sort of burden to his neighbors if he you know, doesn't keep up his household. He's not really much of a crime risk. So this is why replacement therapies, uh, methadone, etc., cetera, um, seem to have worked relatively well at controlling the spillover problems, right. the yeah. violence associated. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is that, 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 that the desire for the opiates is not a kindling desire, right? If you give an opiate addict some, he'll want more, but he'll want it less than, it's sort of like eating. Um, for many of the stimulants, the people with the very bad patterns it's a very bad pattern because it's a kindling desire. The first dose of crack leads you to strongly want the second dose and the third dose and the fourth dose. Not clear you could do a maintenance program that would work with the stimulus. Hmm. The other thing is that the stimulants are frequently used with alcohol and that's a very bad combination behaviorally. So I, I, I'm not seeing it. I don't, I, just, I don't think that there's a plausible fix I want to talk to you a bit about destigmatization. Uh, so, you know, we talked earlier about the way that uh, Americans uh, and other, you know, Westerners, other people around the world think about alcohol. Partly because it's so pervasive a practice, it seems more innocent, despite the fact that it has very destructive effects, certainly on this uh, minority of, of binge users. I also noticed that. And the people uh, in the other car. And the people, indeed, and the people in the other car. Um, I also saw, however, the, a survey which found that about 15% of Americans have used cannabis sometime in the last 12 months, which sounds like a you know quite high number. That sounds right, yeah. And I wonder if that's part of what's going on in terms of changing public perception. Uh, as you see more you know, middle-income, upper-middle-income people, people who seem uh, like respectable people, quote-unquote, using the drug, that suddenly you know, the attitudes about how we ought to regulate it might change. And, and I wonder if you see that happening with any other substance as well, or if you think that that process of destigmatization is something that we might want to arrest or reverse. Well, I thought it was happening with cannabis. <laughs> But Galston and Dion report that, again, on the gay marriage question, if you know somebody that you know is gay, your probability of supporting gay marriage goes way up. If you know somebody that you know is a pot smoker, your probability of supporting cannabis legalization does not go up. Interesting. It doesn't necessarily go down either, though. Right. Now, there may be two offsetting effects, right? It may be that a lot of the people who know somebody who's a pot smoker know that somebody's a pot smoker because he's a problem pot smoker. And it's quite possible that if all of the all of the respectable pot smokers came out of the closet, um, we, we would have a public uh, a change in public attitude. Part of the issue is that the heavy cannabis users now are remarkably downscale socially. Interesting. Right? More than half of all days of cannabis consumption are engaged in by people with a high school diploma or less. And so the sort of 1960s discourse about cannabis conducted between two culturally opposite sides of the spectrum of people who have advanced degrees. Pretty irrelevant to the real phenomenon. Interesting. Um, where I think it would matter a lot is the house energies, right? So my, my favorite line from the Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs is Jobs saying, if Bill Gates had dropped acid just once, 
Windows would be a much better operating system. When you talk about uh, the this idea that uh, heavy marijuana users tend to be downscale, it, it's striking because when you think about a lot of the other larger changes uh, to the labor market, the deteriorating labor market position of less skilled workers, etc., it seems that you know this could be understood as a kind of mass self-medication that's happening on the part of this slice of the population. Well, and, and cannabis is, even illegally, uh, a much cheap, well, somewhat cheaper intoxicant than alcohol, right? So think about getting drunk. Again, if you're a relatively naive user, um, and let's say a, a normal-sized male, five beers, something like that. That's about five bucks worth, and that's good for a couple of hours because the the liver takes it out in about an hour, uh, about a drink an hour. Um, cannabis, you know, a couple dollars worth, plenty. So it's a lower cost. So I think I think it's even I think it's partly gone downscale because it's already low cost, and now we're looking. So Colorado. Uh, which has had pretty legal marijuana in the medical guys for a few years now. Um, some of the stores in Denver, you know, on their websites, advertise their, you know, their product of the month. It's not top drawer cannabis, but it is Sensamia, so it's a potent stuff. Five bucks a gram. That's maybe half to a third the California price. Uh, Washington, the medical places run seven to nine dollars a gram. Um, so we're already seeing some some price erosion there. We may may see a lot more to come, and I don't I don't think that's socially healthy. I'm I'm curious about this. So I mean, anyway, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's going to be politically resistible. Uh, elaborate. We're going to have an industry that's going to fight taxation, <clears throat> and at the beginning they'll you know they'll agree to anything because they just want it, right. But so they want the entering wedge. I mean, they want literally, the entering wedge. you know, yeah. And then just like the booze industry, they'll make sure the, the tax doesn't go up. Now, when you talk about this group of marijuana users, it, 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 it strikes me that it, it relates to this much larger set of social questions. When you're looking at Americans who are at the bottom of the economic ladder, who are struggling in various ways, who've been locked out of the labor market or certainly are trapped in the low end of the labor market, how – and this is a very crude question – how much – of the challenges facing this population are related to intoxicants, whether it's alcohol uh, or marijuana or what have you. Is that a big part of the the tangle of challenges and obstacles facing uh, a lot of poor Americans? It's a good question. I don't know the answer to it. My guess is that intoxication tends to be a contributing cause in the sense that if you're engaged in a self-destructive behavior pattern, being drunk or stoned will help you ignore that fact. And that's, of course, part of the reason why being drunk or stoned is so tempting. Um, so my guess is that if we could abolish intoxication, we would not much change the social economic picture in the, if you will, underclass except for fetal alcohol exposure, which I think is a big deal. Um, on the other hand, we shrinked violence quite substantially. You've thought very deeply about the criminal justice system and the boom in incarceration. Uh, which is fortunately has, has peaked. Which has peaked. Um, 
Many people who favor marijuana legalization often tout its benefits in the sense that uh, it might lead to a reduction in the number of people incarcerated. But my sense from your work is that that's not necessarily going to be a big result. Not a big result. Uh, depending on how you do the calculation, there are 500,000 people behind bars for drug law offenses. That's out of 2.3 million total people behind bars, which is a disgraceful number that every American ought to be working to get down. But 2.3 million total, half a million drug, 30,000 cannabis, and that, that's all vendors, that's not, that's not uh, consumers. So you, know, you can't solve the drug war problem on the cannabis. You can solve the, take a big chunk out of illicit drug revenues you can't take much of a chunk out of, uh, of incarceration. So you get people claiming inconsistent benefits. Oh, we're going to reduce drug incarceration massively by legalizing cannabis. No, if you want to reduce drug incarceration massively, you legalize cocaine. And hmm. um, as I say, I don't, I don't think that's coming. I don't think that should be coming. Although, is there some indirect relationship? So when you're looking at that chunk, the 1.8 million outside of the 500,000 uh, people incarcerated for direct drug war offenses, how much of that component of the crime problem, of the incarceration problem, um, relates to the consumption of narcotics, uh, including alcohol? Well, some, some of it relates to people stealing or doing other income-producing crime to get the money for the drug. Some of it, particularly with alcohol, relates to terrible people things do while they're drunk. Um, yeah, I mean, something like Oh, depending on which study you look at, half to 80% of the people in prison have a diagnosable substance abuse problem. And again, to, to lead a life that disordered, you're going to need some, some buffer between you and reality. Uh, and so I'm a big believer in sobriety 24-7 and the drug version of that. Hmm. Frequent testing and immediate, consistent, mild sanctions. My view is, even if you have a libertarian view that somebody's cocaine use is his own problem until he makes it our problem, somebody's got a burglary conviction, well, he just made his cocaine use our problem. And it's perfectly reasonable to say, no, you can't do that anymore. Tell us a bit more about sobriety 24-7. <clears throat> so this is a program that was invented in South Dakota, which is a state with a terrible drunk driving problem. About a third of the adult prison inmates in South Dakota are in for DUI. Now, you think about it, it's a perfect storm. You have Swedes, Norwegians, Ukrainians, and Native Americans, all very heavy drinking populations. You've got miles and miles of nothing but miles and miles, and you've got long winter nights. Uh, and so they managed to have twice the national average. Drunk and you don't have a lot of density, so cars yeah. are pretty much how you get from place to place. Yeah. Right. On the other hand, you don't have a lot of density, so you'd think that it was almost statistically impossible for two cars in South Dakota to actually meet. Right. But somehow they managed to generate a lot of bloodshed and a lot of incarceration. And so Larry Long, as a, as a DA and then as the, as the uh, state attorney general, created a program he called uh, Sobriety 24-7. And the rule is if you get convicted of drunk driving a second time, instead of going to prison, you can agree to come in twice a day for typically 90 days. 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. for a breathalyzer, seven days a week. Um, and if you don't blow zero, you're in jail. Right? So I the slogan see. of the program is, if you fail, you go to jail for a, for a night. And in fact, in one of the counties, they ran out of jail space, 
and they substituted an hour in a police holding cell for a, a night in jail, seems to have the same effect. 99.5% of those scheduled tests are taken and passed. Now, 47% of the participants screw up at least once. Right? Those are consistent numbers. Um, but the result is a big decrease in drunk driving recidivism, which you can now observe at the county level in terms of fewer accidents. And this is Bo Kilmer's work uh, from Rand. At the county level, you can see a substantial decrease in domestic violence, even though the people on the program aren't there for domestic violence. Turns out if you can force them not to drink, beating up on their girlfriend doesn't seem as attractive when you're sober. This is really interesting because it seems as though if you are dealing with an impulse control problem, if you're dealing with people who behave impulsively, then even if you have a very modest punishment, like being in a holding cell for an hour, that seemed to have a pretty big effect on the problematic behavior. Right. So I think of all of these problematic behaviors as basically time mismatch problems. That people are not acting in the moment the way they would like to act in the long run. So in a lot of cases, we're over-punishing people. We're dealing with people who have you know, very limited time horizons. And then to throw someone like that in jail for this really long period of time, you know, that's overkill, given what we'd have to do to get that person on the right track. So my slogan is we're looking for the minimum effective dose of punishment. But the size of that effective dose depends on how quickly the punishment is administered and how reliably it's administered. Those two things matter a lot more than severity. And yeah, so we, ne we need to have punishments that, that fit the behavioral decision styles of the offenders. But we also need punishments that change the behavioral decision styles of the offenders. In my belief, we don't have science on this yet, but my belief is that what a program like HOPE or Sobriety 24 seven is doing, by creating reliable sanctioning, it's actually creating a sane, predictable, non-chaotic environment around the offender. A lot of these people have never had that. They weren't raised that way, their neighborhood isn't like that, their social surround isn't like that, and the criminal justice system isn't like that. The criminal justice system is like a Might seem arbitrary, neglectful and, and abusive plan parent. Mm -hmm. Most misbehavior is ignored, but an occasional incident leads to a beating or a six-month prison, right? Crazy. And it may be the case that if you can put somebody in a, in a swift and certain sanctions program and actually administer that, that you can change his beliefs about whether he can control his own behavior. So an example of this is if I'm in South Dakota, uh, you know, most of the time I drive drunk, nothing's gonna happen, no one's gonna notice, the behavior isn't punished, I'm not running into another car. Then on these rare occasions something happens and then suddenly it's, it's cosmic and suddenly I'm going to jail for a long period of time and it just wrecks my life. Whereas if it, you know, under sobriety 24 seven, it's very consistent. I know I see the immediate consequence. And so that could have spillover benefits. I wonder, so you mentioned that there are 2.3 million incarcerated, and of course the number who've been through the criminal justice system is much, much larger than that. If your ideas take hold, and we saw that number cut in half, what do you think would be the consequences for American society more broadly? Um, I'm actually more ambitious than that. We're back now to roughly 1965 crime rates. Getting back to 1965 incarceration rates would mean letting 80% of those 2.3 million people out. 
And even then, we would be near, near the top of the International League table for incarceration rates among civilized countries. So is what's going on here, given that the crime levels have declined um, you know, pretty impressively in, in the last couple of decades, just that we have way longer sentences than we did before, and that's why you have... We have, we have longer sentences, and we send more people away. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but insanely longer sentences. And part of what's generated that is that if somebody's not in prison, we do a lousy job of watching him. If we had everybody on a swift and certain sanction program, not necessarily just for drug use, right? You can use that to enforce curfews. You can use that to enforce stay-away orders. Regulate your behavior more tightly, but we allow you to work. We allow you to remain part of your neighborhood, part of your larger community. So I think of the combination of a GPS monitor that tells us where you are all the time and drug testing. It's basically an outpatient prison cell. We're getting most of what we could get from a prison cell for a tiny fraction of the dollar cost and a tiny fraction of the cost and suffering to the offender and the family. Um, and so that's the direction I want to see us going. So your view is that this could really improve the quality of life in many uh, neighborhoods that are now uh, neighborhoods that send large numbers of people to prison because those neighborhoods won't be as disrupted right. by... Right, and I think they're, uh, the, the whole system is just rife with positive feedbacks. You can get something working, everything gets better. Thanks very much for joining me, Professor Kleiman. I really appreciate your time. A great pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.